We are going to spend time together studying God's Word, and we're going to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. It's been quite a handful of years now since I had the opportunity to go to Brazil and spend time with um, some missionaries that I know and some missionaries that you know as well. I spent part of the week uh, or the time there with the Lehrman family and uh, the other part with Al and Nadine Pierschbacher. And I've talked a lot about Al's driving skills and uh, it's a thing to, to behold. I, I told him that I was going to get a t-shirt that said, I survived Al's driving. And uh, he thinks a lot of people want that t-shirt. Um, but I did notice something about Brazilian driving that I thought was intriguing and a little scary. Um, when we see a octagonal shaped sign that's red, uh, even if we didn't have letters on it, we knew what that meant, right? Most of us are nodding our heads and they say, yeah, that means something. If I spell the word that the Portuguese has on that sign, it's P-A-R-E, I would guess you're pretty good translators this morning just by the shape of the sign. What would that say? Stop. In every place but Brazil. They, they alarmed me riding with them. Both of them did this. So Jerry and, and Al both did this. We would be going down the road, and there's not a lot of signs to look at anyway. There's a, there's a lot of monuments to dead people. That makes me a little concerned. Um, but uh, as you're driving along, no speed limit signs, so they seem to pick whatever they want. And uh, then you're coming up on an intersection, and there's that red octagonal sign with the letters P-A-R-E, and they don't slow down. They keep going right through it, just like it wasn't even there. And, well, at first I thought, well, that was an oversight. But the more I saw it, the more it started to make me think, well, what does that say? And so I asked, and it meant stop. And then they said, but it's not a good idea. Because the guy behind you does not stop. And so you just keep going. And the funniest place I saw one, really, truly was, and I should, have, I should have had a camera ready, it would have been a perfect picture. We're heading down this highway and coming to an exit ramp. Right at the front of the exit ramp was one of those signs. And I thought, that is the most bizarre place to ever put a sign like that. I thought, well, maybe they just had an extra one, and they just put it up. Nobody stopped there anyway, because you would really be in trouble if you did. I just thought that was a funny thing, to see that sign, and I thought it was a universal type of sign, and to them, it didn't mean stop at all. I don't even know if they think about it. They just flew right past it. I said that before you today, because there is a song... Here's Psalm 46 I want to share with you. And I think if I wanted to use my terminology for it, in verse number 10, the first words, the first word would be stop. You might have be still, or you might have the word cease striving, or something along that line. 
I, I at first thought stop would be a good place to put right there. Stop and know that I am God. We're going to spend our time in this psalm for the next five weeks, maybe six if it spills over. We'll see how that goes. But it's a truly beautiful psalm, and it is one that will make you stop. And so I want to spend time with this. Let's just listen to it. I'm going to read it to you from verse 1 all the way through. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains quake at the swelling tide, pride, Salah. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He raises his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. Heavenly Father, what a magnificent thing you've done for us in giving us your word. And as we sit down with this passage in our hearts and our minds and in our view, we will learn much about you. We will see what we are too. We are so thankful for your great love for us, that you are mindful of who we are, and you love us so much you gave your son for us that we might have everlasting life that we might have a relationship with you in peace that we would have hope we have a future we have eternity to spend with you Lord that's an amazing thing and more than just a theology it is our very life it is our existence this psalm was written many 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 years ago but the ink is wet still. Because here we stand in such a place where we too must cease striving and know that you are God. I pray that you will impact us with this passage as we give ourselves to it and that your spirit might enlighten us and challenge us and correct if need be, train us in the way that we should go that we might be closer to you and more, more trusting along the path. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I like this uh, psalm. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. There is much for us to see in the handful of weeks that we're going to look at. Uh, rather than just the word stop, I'm going to give to you more of the essence of the word to start with. 
It is let go. Let go. All right, it's kind of a fun way to deal with this this morning, but uh, you as parents might have uh, used such a phrase like this before with a little one. And sometimes to get their attention, you have to add a little touch to it. And I don't know if the Hebrew is literal this way, but it goes like this. Let go. Too many times. The grip is so tight, you've got to smack the little fingers to get their attention. I wonder if that might be a good rendering of that word. Let go. Let go. There's several pieces of this psalm I'd like to work with with you. Uh, some of the titles go things like this. God is our fortress, because that's in the very start. Um, there's one here in, in my Bible, God, the refuge of his people. Is a title that uh, the translators or the uh, publishers put in here anyway. Um, I like to think of this as psalm of a thankful heart. Now you said, but I don't see the word thanks in there. No, you don't. You see the response of one who has learned to trust their Lord. And I think thankfulness is going to be a good response for us. The more we learn about him, the more thankful we ought to be. I, I like to call this a psalm of a thankful heart. And I'll show you as we go through there. Because I've made some observations, and you can make them with me here, even right now. There are three stanzas in this song. We call it a psalm. It's a song. It's a song because in the in the caption above, and you probably have this because it's literally in the Hebrew, verse number one actually starts with, in the Hebrew, for the choir director. All right? That's Hebrew. That's part of the verse. Uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamuth. A song. A song. It was written for the choir director. So now we've got one to listen up this morning. This is a song that the choir director was told to do. It was a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's an interesting group, because if you study the Old Testament and you go back to the days of Moses, the sons of Korah are not your favorite people. If you remember, there was a rebellion. And who led that rebellion? A man by the name of Korah. He was a Levite. He thought, well, why can't I have some sort of authority too? Why can't we all have authority? And by the time the story was over, the ground had swallowed him. Interesting story. But we look at the sons of Korah and we say, huh? The sons of Korah, I thought they were, they were against Moses. Well, these are also Levites. They are a group. There are ten psalms attributed to them. Most of them are here in the 40s. 42, 44, all the way to 49. They belong to the sons of Korah. You'll see that caption at the beginning of all of this. And then there are three more in the 80s. 84, 85, and 87. So 10 are direct, directly attributed to the sons of Korah. 10 of our psalms. Now I have to admit that most of their psalms leave me scratching my head. 
I like Psalms that David wrote. He's got a lot of emotion in there, and, and you could understand his background and all that he's going through, and you say, oh, that's a Psalm of David. You could almost tell that, even if it's not labeled. You could say, well, that must be a Song of David. Sons of Korah wrote sometimes, and you stop and say, well, that was the strangest Psalm I've ever read in my life. That was very unusual. Some of these are. This one's rather straightforward, and I, I appreciate it for what it is. But the sons of Korah are an interesting group. And this is what I put together on a little research into their past. Before David became king, King Saul, who was on the throne at the time, chased him for many, many years. You're probably aware of that. And David had to hide out, and many of his psalms might have been written during those days while he was hiding out. But he... he he eventually ended up in a city called Ziklag. Ziklag. Um, and there a group of others joined him. Warriors, strong, mighty men, who started to understand that David's significance was great and they needed to associate with him. And so they started to collect to David in that little place called uh, Ziklag. And among them were a certain group of brave warriors. They were, they were counted as expert warriors who, were, who especially were skilled with both the bow and the sling. So they were, they were quite uh, advanced in their capabilities. And they were Korahites, sons of Korah. And they came and they joined David. They were mighty men. They were warriors. It's very interesting that later in David's life, after he became king, he had a, a moment where he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, he started it one way and blew it, so they came a second time, and they were doing it right this time. And when David had the procession light out, it was quite a parade and quite a fascinating day of rejoicing. He had the sons of Korah among those leading the procession. Right? The sons of Korah. They were, they were identified in three different groups at that time. There were leaders. One was named Asaph. He was not a son of Korah. He was a Levite, though. One was named Ethan, and he was not a son of Korah, but he was a leader. And the other was a man named Heman. H-E-M-A-N. You might recognize those three names because they are author, authors as well in the book of Psalms. They were known as chief musicians, skillful songwriters, song leaders. Well, Heman was one of those in that parade with the rest of the sons of Korah. I find it very interesting because as I picture these men, the first scene I have of them, really with David, was that they were warriors. They were fighters. They carried weapons and they were very good at it. They led a parade to bring the ark to town, and since the temple wasn't built yet, David had a temple or a tent constructed. And guess who he put in charge of guarding the tent? It was the sons of Korah. Now, generally, when we think of the choir, we don't think of them having weapons. These guys were fully capable of guarding as well as in singing. Interesting group of people. Warriors at heart. Singers of praise to the Lord. 
David used them in dual purposes, to guard, to protect, and to lead in singing. This is one of their psalms. I find that interesting now, because you could almost picture them in military garb, can't you? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Think of it as a warrior writing these words. These are the sons of Korah. And I bring that to your attention because in several occasions, these men were brought out for a particular worship service. Here's one of my favorites. It comes in the life of Jehoshaphat. I've told you this, my favorite story of Jehoshaphat before, but it's in Second Chronicles chapter 20. There were nations that had uh, joined together to fight against Jehoshaphat, and they four or five nations, three, maybe four nations, they had all gathered together, and they were coming against Jehoshaphat, and it scared Jehoshaphat and all the people. They knew they were outnumbered. They knew that they were in trouble, and they cried out to the Lord. They said, what do we do? What do we do? And the Lord answered them and said, oh, this is what you do, Jehoshaphat. I want you to go and watch the battle. I don't want you to go and fight the battle. I just tell you where it's located. You show up there tomorrow. There will be a battle. And I want you to watch it. But Jehoshaphat got to thinking, you know, I, I'm going to go because God told me to. We're going to take the army. But we're not going there to fight. But I'm going to put the lead of that procession. Guess who? The sons of Korah. The choir went that day when they went down into battle. These are the men singing praises to the Lord as they walked down the street. They were warriors, but they were choir members. And I thought, what an interesting display. When Jehoshaphat got there, the battle was over. All of those armies lay dead on the ground. God had gotten there first. I think, what an interesting display. And then later, Hezekiah had an issue. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, too. But Hezekiah especially, the one who had one of the greatest Passovers the world had ever seen, celebrated. He was first to call out the sons of Korah in order to lead the worship service that day. And it's an amazing scene, and someday we'll look at that, Second Chronicles chapter 29. But I want to suggest something to you, or more than suggest it. A psalm is not merely written for the sake of beautiful music. Songs that are to be sung in a worship service, like we sing here, they're beautiful. But they're not merely written to be beautiful. Songs are words set to music. Words communicate. And what the song is meant to do is communicate lessons, communicate experiences, communicate emotional displays that can go from the deepest grief to the greatest of joy. But they were written to worship God, and they were written to instruct His people. There are several things a song ought to do. But the essential nature of a song to be sung in a worship service is, number one, it should worship God. Number two, it should instruct His people. That means we should be able to understand it. We should be able to hear it. There's personal opinion to add to that. But that's what a song is for. This psalm written here 
by the sons of Korah was meant to instruct. It did worship God. It did highlight his greatness in there. You can see the words as it uses great theological terms to describe God. But it is also meant to teach us. There are great lessons here that we learn as we worship this God we know. It was to be sung to the tune or the style of an alamus. You know what that is, don't you? I said, no. Is that something you'd find in a zoo? What's an alamus? An alamus. It is a song to be sung by sopranos. High voices. I would add, uplifting, encouraging, excited. Low voices usually means a little down, a little sad. You know? Soothing, maybe, puts you to sleep sometimes. Low voices. High voices, they get your attention. These songwriters said, nope, this one has to get people's attention. I want them to hear it. Let's have the soprano section sing this one. Alamuth. They designated it on purpose. I think it's rather interesting because when you look at it, there are three stanzas. Three stanzas. Stanza one is the first three verses. At the end of verse number one, see that funny little word? Salah. We're going to get to that in about four weeks. No, it will not take that long just to get to that verse. But we're going to have a whole message on Salah in about four weeks. So that's our marker, the end of stanza one. Stanza two starts in verse four, and it ends in verse number seven with what word? Salah. Stanza 3 starts in verse 8, goes to verse 11, and ends with that exact same word. So they're easy to mark. You say, okay, there's a simple pattern to this. But here's another thing that I find very interesting in my observation. There is a statement in verse number 1. A statement. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. They are not saying, I wish he were, are they? It's a statement. God is. And there is a response in verse number 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. Those are the two sides of the song. One is the statement of who God is. One is the response. Because of who God is. In between those are those stanzas. The first one, I'll give you a title for stanza number one. Trust regardless. Trust regardless. In the midst of change, you still trust him. Stanza number two. Trust rehearsed. It's always good to go back and look and see what God has done. Your trust, in a sense, is justified, if you will. Humanly speaking, we say it this way. Because we've seen what God has done in the past. Rehearsed. Trust rehearsed. And the third one, this is where we start today. It's backwards, I know. I start at the end and work my way up. Stanza three. Trust required. 
It's the focus is set on the Lord. He says in verse number 8, Come, behold the work, the works of the Lord. And then verse 10, Cease striving and know that I am God. I've emphasized the word trust, and even though you say it doesn't appear in the psalm at all, I've never seen the word trust in any of these verses, I think trust is exhibited here all the way through. Trust is especially seen in verse number 10. And that's where we're going to spend our time, the rest of our time here this morning. Verse number 10, because trust is exhibited here in two ways. Number one, what we stop doing. That's an element of trust. Cease striving. And the second way it's exhibited in what we start to do, and that is, know that I am God. Wait till we study that word. That's a great word. We might not get time to it this morning because, number one, it's not in my notes. And number two, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the word stop. (laughs) But we're going to look at the first side of this trust. And like I said before, I think if I were writing verse number 10, I'd start with that word stop, even though it's not literal. The little word, word rafa, is the word. It means to, you ready for this? This is fun. To think, to relax, to sink down like your lazy boy recliner. Now, that's not in the thesaurus, but I wanted to explain it. It's a very normal word, really. Relax. Relax. But it's also, in this sense, what we call a hifel verb. A hifel is something you cause to happen. Something you make happen. And so, to stop or to cease or to relax, as these words are in front of us, means you cause it. To let down. To abandon. Interesting word. To relax, to refrain, to forsake, to leave. You caused it. You did it. You let go. You became quiet. That's the word in front of us. Now, how many of us, in our tendency, like to fix things? Especially when things are rather chaotic around us. Or somebody is acting in a way they shouldn't. And you figure, I can help them. I can straighten out their life. I can fix that person. How many of us are are somewhat, don't raise your hand. All right. But I'm going to guess there's a few of us who are fixers, aren't we? We, we? we are always looking for the answers for everybody else. I know what they need. I could fix that problem. I could do that. In a world of activity, lots of noise, bit of confusion... Maybe describing a classroom, Chelsea. Maybe describing a home. I'm not pointing at anybody, I hope. 
Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe you say, you know, a tornado is a lot more gentler than that. Maybe people go through your world on a rampage. Or maybe you're the one on the rampage. You plow through things like that. You've seen the scene before. You can put it almost anywhere, right? Grocery stores, sometimes. Usually, department stores before Christmas. We have different scenes that we come to mind where we think of, what does chaos look like? When it comes to this word, it's an interesting word because it's usually set in the scene of some sort of wild, chaotic scene. Or much activity is going on, or there's whirling going about, and there's, there's, there's uh, lots of noise happening, and lots of chaos and confusion and such like that. This word pops onto the scene. There's one example in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's actually describing a cherubim, or cherub. That's singular. Cherubim is plural. But it's describing a group of cherubs, so they're cherubim. And it's describing them as having these wings, and they're just darting all over the place. And Ezekiel's trying to write this down and describe it. It's pretty impressive. But as he's watching this, at one point, they stop. And their wings that are much probably like that of a hummingbird or such like that, just constantly in motion, drop and stop. And it's got to be pretty awe-inspiring. Because all this noise and activity is going around, and suddenly they stop, and the, the wings just stop and drop. That's the word that the Hebrew used there to describe this action coming to a stop. And I thought... Well, that's an interesting picture. And another one is in the days of David, much later in his life, he, he took up a census. And, and we know from Scripture he shouldn't have done that because God punished him for that. And in this punishment, an angel, a destroying angel was sent out among the, the, the towns of Judea to punish people. And I'll tell you folks, if you read the text in Second Samuel, it's in chapter number 24, this is what they saw. 70,000 people dropped dead in the path of that angel. And it was coming to Jerusalem. And David could see it coming. And in the midst of all of that, suddenly God said, Stop! And the angel stopped and lowered its sword. That's the word. In the midst of that horrific scene, he told the angel, leave it there. Let it go. And he let down his sword. There's a New Testament concept, and it's not the same word because this is Hebrew and New Testament's not, but there's a, a scene where Jesus was in a boat, if you recall. And there was a terrible storm on the water. The disciples thought for sure they were done for. They, were, they, were, they knew the water, and they knew fishing, and they knew the storms. And they said, this was the bad one. And they said, well, it's too late. We can't do a thing about it. Jesus is sleeping there, and they woke him up and said, Lord, don't you care? We're going to die. We're going to die. And he got up, and he looked at the waves, the wind, and he said, stop. Oh, what a traumatic experience that had to have been. What a change of scene suddenly. 
I think there are some episodes in life that such a thing like that gets our attention. When you're in the midst of something that's making a lot of noise and a lot of concern and a lot of stress, and then suddenly this word pops up, cease striving and know that I am God. It's meant to get your attention. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not a good idea. It's not, you know, well, when you get around to it. That's why I use the picture of stop it. Let go. Because sometimes we get so wrapped up in what's going on. We don't listen very well. This is a word to get your attention. Here's what I find is curious. It's written in a plural form. And when I was going through this psalm, I was thinking, all right, who's God talking to? I mean, it's easy when you read scripture to think he's talking right to you, right? <laughs> I do that all the time. I say, oh, boy, that's right to the heart. And I'm, I'm looking at that word and I'm thinking, okay, who's he talking to? Let me give you three options at least. It could be to the nations. Verse number 10, look at this verse. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Are the nations in an uproar? In their day? In our day? You ever watch the news? Some are tottering. Verse number 6 says, the nations make an uproar. The kingdoms totter. They raise their voice. Well, he raised his voice and the earth melted. They're tottering. You know, here's a lesson if I wanted to bring it instantly into application. Our world needs this. Our world needs to stop and know that he is God. The nations jostle. They maneuver. They strategize, they manipulate, they pull out the bigger gun than the guy next door. All of that to intimidate, to get what they want. And what do they want? The power. They want to be on top. They want to be on top. My favorite kid game was King of the Hill. We had a hill. Oh, it was great. The neighborhood kids came over to play with us. King of the Hill was a simple game. You didn't need any equipment. You just had to be on the top of the hill. Everybody else wanted on top of the hill. And so that was the place of, of success. So as they're coming up the hill, you had to keep them down the hill. There were no rules. That made it fun. But it also meant that when four guys got a hold of you, there were no rules. So there were some garments torn, there were lots of grass stains, there were burns on the skin. I don't think we ever broke a bone, to tell the truth. But it was kind of exciting to grab somebody and fling them down the hill. And that was the whole point. That's what made it so fun, I think, was throwing each other down the hill. And we played that game an awful lot. We didn't have to mow that hill very often either, for some reason. King of the Hill. Nations play that game. They play that game all the time. The nations roar. There's chaos. 
I can't help but picture, in my mind, when I think of what does chaos look like with a whole group of people, a video of the stock exchange when something goes wrong. You ever see that? The screaming and the yelling and the throwing of things and all the rest. Incredible scene. Well, here's the reality. There's only one at the top, and that's God. It's only one. If our nation, if any nation, if all the nations would stop and know that he is God, what a different world this would be. I'm not campaigning for a position of any kind politically. I don't even have a plan for the world, so to speak. Because I know when Jesus Christ comes, he will be there and he will rule this world. And it will be something we can't even imagine to this day. But this verse says, stop and know that I am God. The nations need that message, really. I would say, okay, that could be one. It could be that the enemies of the Jews need to hear this message. Because as he's describing in verse number 9, about wars, about bows, about spears, about chariots, oh, Israel knew that very well. How often it was that they were up to their eyeballs in trouble with bows and chariots and warriors of all kinds coming at them. The, the Old Testament just shows it over and over where enemies encamped around them, thinking many times, we've got them now. We've got them now. You know, that story has not changed either, has it? 1967? 1973? How many different times can we bring up this kind of thing, even in our day and age? For the nation surround the nation of Israel, to destroy it, to push it off the map. They knew that so many times. I told you about Jehoshaphat's story. Hezekiah, in Isaiah chapter 36, was in that situation too. The Assyrians had come. They had circled all the way around Jerusalem. They were shouting out threats to Hezekiah and his people. And they were pretty much saying, you don't have a chance. You never will have a chance. Because, number one, you got rid of all your idols. You would say, well, that sounds good. But not to the Assyrians who believed in idols. They said, you got rid of all your gods. They're not going to help you now. That was their opinion. And then they say, and you do worship one God, but he's not going to help you either, because we beat all the others. We could beat him too. You know what? That was the last thing they ever said. Not a smart thing to say. They put it in print. They sent a letter to Hezekiah. Hezekiah said, oh, this is, this is what we do. Walks into the temple, lays it out in front of the Lord. <laughs> says, Lord, look what they said about you. God says, don't worry about them. When you wake up tomorrow morning, they won't bother you anymore. And when he woke up in the morning, 186,000 soldiers lay dead. The angel came and visited that night. What a scene that was. But they knew what it was like to have trouble all the way up to their eyeballs. The enemies blasted at the Lord's people, but many times they quickly turned to the people's Lord. And they would raise their voice and they would shake their spears and they would boast and they'd declare themselves victorious. And the Lord would look down and say, you're not enough to contend with me. You don't have what it takes to defeat me. Let go of it. Forsake it. Leave it. Be quiet. Stop striving 
and know that I am God. I'm the one who breaks the bow. I'm the one who breaks the spear in two. I'm the one who burns the chariots with fire. I am that one. So stop trying. Let go of it. And know that I am God. That's a lesson for our nations. That's a lesson for the enemies of God. But there might be another group being addressed here. Because all the way through this psalm, there's a personal pronoun set that keeps showing up. And it says, our, 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 our. And that's the Jews themselves. He is our refuge in verse number one. We will not fear. (coughs) Verse number two. Verse seven, he's with us. He's our stronghold. Verse eight. Come, he's addressing the same ones. Come and see. And verse 10, let go and know, for God is with us, verse 11 says. I can only imagine the story of the people of God when this was recorded. I don't know exactly what it was, but time after time after time, these same stanzas would appear on their page. Trouble would come. And the people would exhaust every single bit of their strength and all of their expenses and all of their strategy and all of their times and all of their manpower. And no doubt they had committee meetings and war councils and advisors to the left and to the right. And somebody would finally say, Hey, have you tried God yet? And it's like a light bulb. Oh, that's right. Why didn't you trust him? They tried everything else. You ever seen that pattern before? It's all the way through the Old Testament. I had thought, one of my thoughts was, along this line as I was putting this together, that I ought to give each of you a piece of string about this long at the beginning of the service. And at this point, ask you to hold it up. And see how many of you have tied it into a complete knot by the time we got to this point in the sermon. Because some of us fidget a lot with our fingers, don't we? We tie and they tie and they tie, you know. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of a fun thing to do, but then maybe somebody would be embarrassed, you know, because they're holding up a big ball of knots. I said, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't do it that way. So I didn't do that, obviously. I, I didn't give you that. But if your life was a ball of string... How many of us have tied it into a complete knot by now? With all the different ways, different strategies, different stresses, different worries, you know, all we go, tight, tight, tight. And then finally we get this idea, you know, God says to leave it to him. So we hand him this giant knot. So, okay, Lord, can you fix that? Can you hear it? They'd say, let go. Let go. He says it over and over again to Israel, let go. If he said it to the church age, let go. If he said it to church of 2018, do you think it'd be a different topic? If he said it to the church in Hillsdale, do you think it'd be a different topic? God says, let go. 
Let go. Know that I am God. You say, well, pastor, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. Okay. Go with me, First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. And I'll show you a corresponding verse. Verse number 7. I'm going to guess you've seen this verse before. Casting all your care upon him. You might have the word anxiety there. Casting all your anxiety upon him. Because, why? Oh, you're afraid to say it. Why? He he cares for you. Yes. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. You've seen that verse before, right? But let let me explain it a little more graphically. The Greek word is to throw it, and throw it hard. It's very intense. Throw it, cast it, it's ripto is the word. I like the word ripto. It's kind of a funny sounding word, but I think of a riptide, and it pulls you away in a hurry, doesn't it? A ripto, that's the verb. Uh, Epi ripto, that means throw it fast, throw it hard, throw it. Intentionally, aggressively, it's an aorist tense, that means once and for all, that means take your fingers off. Do you hear it? This is the way we do it. Lord, this is my problem. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. And we leave one finger on the corner and drag it back. We think, well, if we give him 90% of it, we're doing pretty good. But we keep that 10% and drag it back and start again. And 10%, we keep feeding it. This verse, this word, says cast it once and for all and leave it there. Cast it far off, aggressively, intentionally, let go, and leave it there. Is that easy? No, it's not easy. But I wanted to show you something. What God told the Jews back then, he still says to his church, let go. Let go. You see, I call that trust. That's lesson number one in trust. Let go. Do you trust him? Let go. Something that is hard for us to do. I didn't even go to step two yet. But let go is the first one. Know that he is God. I I really wonder if we get to know God, if we really trust him. Do we get to know God by really trusting him? I want to learn this psalm with you, and I say learn it with you. I say that we know a lot about turmoil. We know know about chaos. We know about uproar. We know about challenges. We know about all these things. It's so easily named among us, I'm afraid. Some of us are the recipients of trouble. Some of us are the instigators of it. I know that, too. But maybe somebody might teach us this song. Let go. Stop. And know 
that I am God. I would love for that to become the tune of every day. What do you think? These are the things that I want to share with you because we have the privilege of knowing God, right? We have a privilege here of knowing God, and I believe we have a privilege of trusting Him too. And that is a reflection of a thankful heart. It has seen what He has done. It has learned to trust Him. And that's the response that follows a thankful heart. We're all on this journey together, folks. And as we go through the psalm, I hope that it not only challenges us, but it encourages us too. Because I want to be that kind of a person, don't you? Heavenly Father, you know us all very well. Your word just goes right to the heart of the story in most of our lives here. And we thank you, Lord, for your directness. We thank you, Lord, that you care enough to say it. You did not leave us. You did not let go of us. You did not walk away from us. Even when we have fought with you, resisted, struggled, turned our ways away from you, did it our own way, by our strength, by our wisdom, our strategies, our plans, our efforts, our energies, we've dumped in so much, Lord, and you've watched every single bit of it. And you've been merciful, and you are with us. And then you look again and say, let go. And I don't know, perhaps, Lord, you're speaking to somebody exactly this morning, right in the heart of an issue. They've been struggling with it, struggling with it. They've tried every single thing but turn to you. And just hand it into your care. They have not cast it before you. They have not let go of it either. And Lord, if, you, if you're looking down here and you see some of us like that today, help us, we pray. Help us to grasp that it is you, it is you that we are to know and to trust. Lord, there's a lot for us to learn. But thank you for your patience with us in this process. We rejoice in that and love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.